Welcome to Leap Year, a podcast about taking chances, making mistakes, and spending a year or several leaping into something new. I'm your host, Jess Caggio, and this week I speak with a woman who's taken several leaps. Sheila McElroy connects people to places through her passion for urban neighborhoods and helping others tap into their surroundings. She's worked in downtown revitalization management and as a historic preservationist for local governments through her own company, Circa. After running her own show for many years, she took a big leap in her 50s to start a new chapter. She now runs her company, Noodling Around San Francisco, where she helps people unplug and engage with their surroundings in a more profound way. Throughout this conversation, we talk about how racism and white flight affected urban areas and funding for neighborhoods, the tightrope one walks to avoid gentrification, how the COVID pandemic is reshaping San Francisco, and how everything goes through cycles, both in life and in neighborhoods. We start where her sense of place was developed, the Hudson Valley. Well, I grew up in the Hudson Valley, but this is the lower Hudson Valley, which is an hour outside of Manhattan. And we always identify ourselves not by the exit that one takes off the highway, but the train stop. So our train stop was Croton on the Hudson, on the Hudson Harlem line. And for anyone who grew up in that area, that's very much a, a telling of one's place. Uh, so I grew up in the Hudson Valley, uh, in the area around Croton on the Hudson and Cold Spring, which is Cold Spring, New York. And, you know, this is really, that's where the Hudson is very wide in the valley and with very dramatic, beautiful, rolling green hills. The towns from Manhattan up the Hudson are spaced about every seven miles, I think it is. Originally, they were boat stops where the, the ships that would go up and down the Hudson would stop at these towns. Therefore, all these towns are oriented. The main street runs from the now train stop, but used to be the boat stop, and goes about three blocks up, you know, a slight hill. And that's how, where, you know, all the commercial buildings would be and the churches and the houses. And then they spread out from there and then they would spot all the way up the Hudson until you get to about Poughkeepsie. And that was the structure of my growing up. That's how I understood the environment and all of, and my environment. So my sense of place is very much defined by the history of Manhattan Island and the history of the Hudson Valley where the these towns grew and evolved and that means that i had very much an early awareness of the of the native americans of the algonquins the um the mohegans and all the because all of our towns are named after it's either a dutch sounding name or it's an algonquin sounding name and that's how we we grew up with with this understanding, very deep understanding of the people who came before us and then the settlers. And so it's very much also a much more Dutch influence as opposed to an English influence, which you will see 
in the Northeast, you get most of the, the English influence. If you think of New England, of course, but also in other settlements. Uh, but it just was a very, very different um, area as far as architectural experiences, um, understanding, growth, etc. Also highly influenced by earlier early Dutch and then the, and then the English, of course, after they took Manhattan. So that just that sense of place um, again was just from my early days, and we were lucky enough to have a mother who was very aware of this herself. She was very much um, a person who cultivated beauty in her home cultivated an appreciation of history, cultivated uh, an environment within our home and outside the home that was very appreciative of the aesthetic, both the natural aesthetic and the built environment. My sense of place, again, was um, both my personal sense of place and where we are in the larger environment was something that was definitely encouraged. And I took that as I moved, you know, as I grew up in my world and, you know, enlarged, I became more aware of like, oh, here's this other town, but that looks very different than this town. Now, why is that? And, well, that's because this was really not settled by the Dutch or this was really an English settled town and what that looks like. And those influences and that awareness and weaving history in and out of that, again, was something that I grew up with. It was just something that sparked my interest. And I love a good story. So, you know, it's a visual, there's something to look at, it's pretty or it's interesting, and there's a story attached. That was something that I never let go of. So in essence, I really never moved away from the picture book uh, approach to, to learning, right? Um, I really, yeah, I understand. And I, there's a, here's an object, here's a place, and here's the story that attaches to it. And everything in my life, has circled around that early beginning and understanding that when I put my hand on a textile or a chair that ha or a brick that has a history to it, that I am feeling the same brick, textile, piece of wood of the chair that the maker from 200 years ago to the person who moved it into the house, that I am now a part of that, that lineage or that history. And that I believe is really important. I think that, so by the way, the, the name for that is called material culture. <laughs> when you connect with something, an object. So that material culture is something that I always I like to pass that on and I like to do it in a fun way mm -hmm. but I have great reverence for it um, again because I was taught to have reverence for that how does that curiosity and sense of place that being so grounded in your sense of place how does that how did you take that and it progress beyond just an interest or something that's very much you know part of yourself and your childhood and what influences you and how you think? How do you, that move into a career? Great question. I thought I was going to be a writer, and I actually went to my undergraduate. I went to um, college for writing. I was always writing as a kid. Uh, again, because 
cultivating the imagination and the sense of place. And I was really interested in, I guess we could call it children's books, but it was more like, I think now we would call it young adult. And I went to college and I started that process, but I realized early on, I was not very interested in writing dialogue. I was much more interested in writing about the environment of where these stories took place, which I think is why also one of my favorite writers is uh, Thomas Hardy. And Thomas Hardy is an English, 19th century English writer who was trained as an architect. And he writes about landscape and buildings. Um, He also wrote like Tess of Duberville and Far, Far From the Matting Crab. So he does fabulous dialogue as well. I quickly picked up, uh, and this is what college should do, I quickly became interested. Now, I had grown up going to museums. So an hour outside of Manhattan, I was the kid that skipped, you know, school and high school, not to go hang out and smoke and drink with my classmates, but to, I was a culture nerd. I would get on the train and I would go into the city and I would watch ballet used to be able to watch ballet rehearsals at um at at new york city ballet and i would be in the museum you know the metropolitan museum was probably my second home i was there all the time and i'd also go to the theater uh with friends you know we'd go to the theater all the time so i grew up with that so i was a culture junkie as a kid and when i got to college i started really getting more into museum studies and i thought i was going to be um what we would call like arts management. And so I was following the arts management crowd when I, you know, went back, I moved to the city, I moved, left Rhode Island, I moved to the city and started um, taking some classes. I thought I was actually going to uh, do my graduate work in um, textiles. So American folk textiles, because I love textiles. And I had once gotten thrown out, yes, thrown out of the Metropolitan Museum of Art because I had touched an ancient Chinese robe. It was silk. It was red silk. And they had it displayed so that you could easily touch it. But unfortunately, when I did touch the hem of this robe, I was escorted out of the museum and my ID card taken away for (laughs) six months. But, you know, it just sort of evolved. And when I thought I was going to go into like, you know, museum, I thought I would actually go, not as a curator, I I almost went to Williams. I was either going to go to Williams for exhibit design, or I was going to stay in the city in NYU and do a graduate work in folk, folk material, folk textiles. So I was debating, and while I was debating, I decided, because I had nothing else to do with a full-time job and decide where to go to graduate school, I took some classes in historic preservation at Columbia. And the first day when I walked into class for historic preservation, which was just sort of a random class, to be honest with you, or I thought it was at the time, I sat down, the speaker, and I'll never forget, she was a known wallpaper historian. And I took the class and her name is Catherine Lynn. And Catherine Lynn started talking about preservation and historic papers and interiors, I fell in love. And it was like everything that I loved, everything that I had studied, everything that had drawn me 
and I had been sort of, you know, testing for all those years because I went to graduate school later. I went to didn't go to graduate school until I was like 27, 26, 27. I didn't go right out of college. I sat in that classroom and listened to her talk and I think I might I might have wept because I was so happy to be to feel like I had found my place and indeed it felt more like a calling. So historic preservation was very young at the time. It was a young field and I knew I was like that this is what I want to do. So I applied to graduate school. I actually wound up declining Columbia and going to the University of Pennsylvania because that program was more in line with what I wanted to study. And also my teachers at my, the instructors at Columbia were like, go to Penn. That's where we're going. (laughs) It was just great. And so I commuted between New York and Philly several times a week to go to class. Yeah. So it was pretty interesting. I was married at the time. I was uh, with a Philly boy. So it I had a great deal of support, and if I needed to stay over in Philadelphia, I had my in-laws there to stay over. So that was really great, and it was very actually very supportive. So it's how I was able to do that. I went to graduate school at University of Pennsylvania. Um, one of the first classes, uh, graduate degrees in historic preservation in the United States. There are more now, but at the time, there were only about three in the country, two or three in the country. So I'm showing my age, not that I care. But it was really exciting to be on, we were on the edge of the historic preservation movement. I got out of graduate school, I had my daughter, and of course the irony is my first job out of graduate school was with the New York Historical Society in the registrar's department, (laughs) exactly where I thought I was going to be years earlier, so it was just ironic. But there was a method to the madness. I was actually hired to for documentation of the material culture. So it was things that I had studied. I had just refused, actually. my I declined, I should say, my acceptance into the PhD program at Penn to study material culture. I thought, I don't want to be, I didn't want to be a professor. I didn't want to pursue that. So I wanted to get going with having my daughter and and getting out. I wanted to do the work. I wanted to be in the field. And I knew that. So I was at the New York Historical Society for a couple of years. Things evolved. And eventually, I actually a friend of mine that I met at Columbia, he was working for a program in New Jersey called the Main Street Program. And he contacted me, or I can't remember how we met up again. And he told me about this movement, which I kind of knew about, but I didn't really understand it well. There was a movement, the National Trust for Historic Preservation is through the National Park Service, and that's in DC. So under the National Trust for Historic Preservation, they had years earlier started a new program called Main Street. And Main Street was a national program available for communities um, that were under a certain population. I think you had, I think the population at the time had to be under 30,000. That's my memory. Um, And it was specifically to help raise up traditional slash historic neighborhood, commercial neighborhoods in city, in, you know, towns, in these smaller towns across America 
to help them revitalize because they had been hit, but the 70s and 80s uh, exit from downtowns. So this is when malls were constructed. Uh, this is when people were abandoning downtowns. Uh, in some areas, that was because of Why? what we would call, well, that's because we would call that a white flight in some communities or cities. Mm -hmm. It was also an economic flight that there, the downtowns, planners and urbanists will have identified that the building of the American malls through the 70s and, and 80s depleted the mom and pop it depleted the mom and pop businesses and what we would call traditional urban areas or traditional commercial districts main street evolved and came about to resurrect these historic traditional commercial districts that you see in every old movie that we all understand but when i tell you that they had been abandoned i mean like ghost towns and communities mm -hmm. all across America were struggling. And these small mom and pop businesses, some of which had been there for generations, had actually been part of the movement that originally built these small towns. And we're talking about towns that are 200 plus years old. Now, maybe they started for different reasons. Maybe in San Francisco, it would have been the gold rush. In, you know, the Hudson Valley where I grew up, maybe it had been, um, you know, brick making, whatever the main industry of that area, that that industry, there were small towns. Just as I said to you earlier, the train or the ship went up the Hudson Valley, a town was established and people opened up general stores, hardware stores, built churches, you know, sold clothes, created bakeries, all of every single town in America started that way. And now they were the the 1970s explosion of the mall pulled businesses away from there or just flat out destroyed existing businesses that had been around for for as I said, sometimes generations. This was completely again, changed the landscape. It completely changed the landscape. We were completely car dependent. People would be in their suburban, and I don't want to get email, like, you know, hate mail about how, you know, hating the suburbs, and that's not what I mean. But when you had homes that were built, that were developed in isolation, that you had to drive to, and drive from to go shopping and then you build a mall that people can drive from their house to the mall and completely navigate away from the downtown or the, what was once the heart of their community that community that downtown is going to become and did become a ghost town movies movie theaters moved out of the downtown libraries moved out of the downtown post offices moved out of the downtown even in many 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 cities the government center moved out of town so now you had to drive from one nuclear entity like this a civic park to 
an office park to a shopping park, which is what a mall is. And these are isolated satellite areas that you have to drive to in between. It completely changed the landscape of America. And every urban It also center- changes who people's accessibility. I'm not like a transportation expert, but I, you know, if people have to have a car in order to be able to get to like the, essentially the new city center, that takes out a whole yes. group of people who are able to have access to those so, things. Exactly. Ding, ding, ding. You get the prize because if you cannot afford, now you need not just one car. You need two cars because one person in a nuclear family is driving to work. The other person in the nuclear family, we will identify this person as the mom, typically, has to drive to the market, take the kids to the school, whatever, whatever, to do all the stuff, you know, and maybe even also have a job. The people who can't afford the one or two car, two cars, they are still in the, we'll call it the commercial, the urban center the, the, the commercial district center, they are still there because they can't afford it. And they are relying on the now anemic bus system, the very anemic public transportation system. Um, there very likely aren't any subways or anything like that. It's just the bus. And that's now, the schedule is now reduced. So you have uh, fewer people living in these urban centers they are of lower income. They are um, struggling to get their kids to school, which maybe the school has also now reduced the bus service, the public school bus service. So it's very complicated and had a very direct effect on the not only the commercial landscape, but all and the residential landscape, but also even widened even more greatly the socioeconomic divisions. So now you've got, and that's why I mentioned earlier white flight, because now you've got lower income people in these urban economic centers, commercial districts, usually people of color, definitely of lower economic status, and people have moved out to the burbs in in these isolated areas. Now the new schools, and I'm not an education historian here, but that's a whole other ball of wax. The new schools are being built on these sort of campus-like environments in the suburban areas. And so now you're dividing them even more. So you don't have the mix. And if all of this has to do with downtown revitalization. Everything that I've mentioned, you know, your hospital is and your doctor's offices are now someplace else. So this great divide in the 70s into the early 80s was painful. So by the time we get into the 90s, when I started, um, they were beyond the pale. It, it, some of these neighborhoods that I consulted to worked in myself full time. When I tell you that they look like war zones, I am not exaggerating. It seems like there's a domino effect that starts with, at least in my view, the domino effect starts with white flight. You've got white people leaving 
taking away resources or resources are moved to create well, new yes. systems First, you have or the businesses whole leaving. new areas. Right. Okay. Businesses First, leaving. The businesses at, leaving. At, at one point yeah. you described governments, perhaps government centers being reassigned or, or created to service that uh, the white population that has now moved to the suburbs. Mostly people of color remain in the downtown center that used to be flourishing, but is no longer because of the public investment in the community has completely gone down and people are left with nothing. And I mean, my experience, what I have seen is that usually people of color, black people are blamed for why a neighborhood looks a certain way when it's, this is, this is, this this didn't happen in a vacuum. Like this has been happening for decades as to why we're now here. So when you're thinking of, Okay. Okay. So we're on the same page. When you're thinking of um, the work that when, like at the, at the point you're starting your work, how are you thinking of that and trying to create something that's different, right? If we're going to revitalize the neighborhood, how are we going to make sure that we're, we're, public investment is going to be servicing these neighborhoods in a way that allows them to stay and not be moved out? So my training is with the Main Street program. And the Main Street program, when I, which is a very much a particular methodology, the Main Street program, how I was trained, is there were four areas of concentration, just to, if you kind of, or organizationally, was that you have design, that's anything visual that you're looking at, whether it's a logo for a business or it's a building or a streetscape, you know, in, a, in an entire dead hat. So you've got design, you've got promotion, you want to promote, you know, that's marketing. You've got economic restructuring, that's the en- the economic engine of this all. And then you have relationships or organization, sort of overall organization, right? Whatever that looks like. Main Street very much was, we are not redevelopment. Okay, now some of the Main Street programs, many of the Main Street programs were partially funded, and I'm not the spokesperson for Main Street here, but the Main Street program was oftentimes partially funded by redevelopment agencies, which is a whole other uh, topic. But it was not a redevelopment program, meaning a lot of us were going in and fixing up the issues that redevelopment had caused, right? The issues that re, like redevelopment housing, redevelopment for businesses. So I don't want to sound like I'm anti-redevelopment, but we all know that redevelopment movement in the, so post-World War II, I keep backing up, but post-World War II, you have all this redevelopment money that came in and you had money that came in for highways. Those two things, those two factors changed the landscape of America. So you have increased, you have development happening. Let's put all the low income poor people in these housing units and let's take the old people and put them in these housing units and let's build highways for people who can afford cars to live over here. Like that's how it started happening. Um, so my work in downtown revitalization was always, quite frankly, I'll use the word anti-gentrification. It was to grow from 
the community up. And so my mentality, which this is why the Main Street program um, worked so well for me, I can only talk about myself, why the approach worked so well for me, because it was about who are the existing stakeholders? Oh, they're the people who have businesses and homes, who go to work, who go to school, and who live in these centers. So we absolutely started there. and it evolved any of the programs, any of the communities, any of the neighborhoods that I worked with and work with now have to have that component for me to work there. I won't even, I won't even consult with your organization if that isn't the core major component. That's just me. I'm not speaking for anyone else. Jives with what you were saying before about the importance of understanding the place having a sense of place, having a sense of the history, having a sense of the people. So that makes a lot of sense to me. I think what I'm what I'm wondering about is how do you get how do you have whether it be public or private investment in in a neighborhood that keeps the people there, that believes mm-hmm. that the people who already live there should remain that is not about redeveloping anything but about addressing the issues that redevelopment have caused and like they still are going to put money towards that they're not going to say well we want to be able to make x amount of dollars out of this so we want to see this type of restaurant this type of exercise place this and it kind of completely changes what the neighborhood actually looks like and is not really is not it's not done in a way to service the people who live there but rather to try to cater to a different clientele aka a white clientele great question and I, this is going to come up for me over and over again. You have to be true to yourself. It must be an authentic place. So that said, let me tell you what I mean by that. You start with the people who are living there, who have businesses there, and who are working there. And you get them all together maybe not initially all at once, (laughs) you know, you meet with them. I mean, communication is paramount and find out what the grievances are. What do they see? And as you, as you work with these people, what do they see? What, what do they believe? What, why are they still there? Um, What do they think they can bring to the mat? Because most of the people who I would first meet, I'm just talking, this is a million years ago, back in the 90s, they were, and even when I meet them now, we're kind of experiencing this now, I'm sure we'll come on to, is they are probably in a place of despair because now they have really hit rock bottom because what is the first lesson we learn in any form of recovery is admitting you have a problem, is hitting the bottom, hitting your bottom and admitting you have a problem. And if a community can't admit that there is a problem in their community and we are all participated in that problem, then you can't do anything about it. So there are some difficult conversations that happen and then you start to build and you look at what are our strengths? What do we have here? And 99 to 9 tenths of the time, people will, will reflect back to, well, we have this heritage of blank. We have this history of blank. I remember when we did this. We were thriving when. 
And then you take those basic touchstones, whatever they are, and you start to build from that. And then people can find commonality. It is not as tidy as, well, this is black and this is white. This was, oh, and this was, no, it really isn't that. You start to, you look back and you see um, that, and I'm talking about communities, even when there was like so, uh, social unrest in the 1960s. Um, what are the commonalities? What are the, the shared interests? What are the shared desires and experiences? And you And you build from there. And when people have, even if it's only a mustard seed size of hope, hope is amazing what it can do. If you even, if they just have a glimmer that someone believes there is something there still, what they can do. The first thing, like I'm going to make a quick, really quick example, existing businesses. Let's stand outside your business. Let's go across the street and stand outside your business. And we look at their storefront. I go, what do you see? And they describe whatever that is. I go, really? Because you know what I see? I see filthy windows. I see weeds along the street. I see a window display that hasn't been changed in so long that I can't read the faded labels on your packages. I see, you know, you may be doing, you may be working really hard, but your business says to me on the outside, this person doesn't care. So. I went in and helped them clean up their business. You can, it doesn't cost much to get a bucket of water, soapy water, and clean the front of your building, whatever. So I started them cleaning up their businesses, started people cleaning up the street. Oh, let's plan. Someone says, oh, well, I, I have some flowers, extra plants in my nursery up the street I can maybe bring some of those and we can plant flowers and sure enough like the old folktale of stone soup everyone starts to bring something that they can contribute so it's a slow process it is a painfully slow process sometimes but if the people who are living and working in a downtown area don't care enough to fix up their storefront or to pick up the trash in front of their house, no one else is going to care. So when I say it's tiny, sometimes painful or uncomfortable steps, that's where we begin. And when you do that, then you get the attention because you mentioned private public monies earlier, and that's how you get the attention. You cannot do this solely. You've got to get the the public monies, you've got to get, you know, City Hall to start recognizing the efforts and and allocating money from some areas into other areas. You'd be amazed how money comes out of the, the woodwork when you start saying, yeah, these businesses are getting together because they want to do something. So it's difficult. It's not easy work, but it is enormously satisfying for everyone involved. I want to take a quick break to go over your voting to-do list. If you have not yet registered to vote, you can still do so. If you still need to check your registration, you still have time. If you want to be further civically engaged, you can phone bank or text bank for the national election or your local elections. Lastly, get a voting plan together with your family and friends to make sure everyone has a plan to vote. 
whether they're doing so by mail, dropping it off, or voting in person on November 3rd. It's so important for all of us to take part in this day. All election-related materials are in the show notes. All right, let's get back to the show. How did you do that work while not being seen as like a white woman coming in to tell perhaps people who are not white what to do or like, you know, how to have their businesses look? Are you building community relationships with like community leaders? Are you like, how are you starting that conversation? Because I'm assuming you're not just walking up to somebody's business and being like, hey, let's wipe your window, you know, like, no, <laughs> like, what did it take in order to, yeah, yeah, what, like, walk yeah. us through that piece, because I think that that's a bit prickly. Sure, I, I that is awesome. Um, that's a great question. And I have stood in someone's threshold of their business, I have um, been on the school stage, or the you know, the community room stage and had a room full of people who were ready to skin me in the parking lot, just waiting for me to, to drop certain terms or whatever. Um, and at the end, I would walk out with people hugging me because I would go to these communities as a, and then I, I was quite young as a white woman in you know, in their mind, you know, I was educated. I must have looked very privileged because I drove up in a car because all these communities were not in the downtown I was living in. I drove up in a car. I had on clean clothes. I looked like I was fed and I was college educated. And I'm standing up there telling them what they're going to do with their community. I was not necessary, you know, but there was always one person that I knew. I didn't, I didn't invite myself there. Someone brought me there. Someone had started this process way before Sheila ever came along. And I'm talking years before that. This wasn't Sheila coming in. This was the business owners of that neighborhood saying, we have got to do something or we are going to lose. I didn't, I never dropped in. It was the community that initiated the, we need help. They initiated, they saw, they'd probably already done five years, maybe even 10 years of work before I ever got there. That's so important to point out because the way that from an outsider's point of view, someone who's not, you know, in this world, it's easy to see whenever development starts to happen, if it's not done in the right way, it feels like people are kind of descending upon a neighborhood and deciding this is what it could look like. And this is how, you know, how great it can be. You know, one of my favorite shows is Sex in the City. And in many ways, it's a classic and perennial, but in other ways, in 20 years later, there are glaring problems. And one of the scenes that always uh, strikes me is there's one scene where they're like eating at a restaurant and Charlotte says, oh, I love New York. There's always a new neighborhood, a new man, a new whatever. It's like, there's always a new neighborhood. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? Like, what does that actually mean? There's a new neighborhood. We've created new spaces that people of like her and of her economic or socio class can go to and feel quote unquote comfortable in. 
that wasn't a new neighborhood. Like people right. already live there. Exactly. And maybe they're not living there now. Yes. Oh, I my first full-time assignment, my first town that I, I worked in was a town called North Plainfield in New Jersey. And I remember I was so excited about it. And I was telling, you know, some people about I'm going to be working in this community, da, da, da. And I would see the faces of people going, you're going to work there? You're, you're going there every day? You're going to work there? I'm like, yeah, I'm so excited. And they were like, oh, well, you know, and they had these, I was like, well, when was the last time you were in North Plainfield? Oh, I haven't been there in years because my mother wouldn't let us go. Like, then you'd hear like the stories about why they wouldn't go to this town. And, um, and, and it was perception, but perception is reality for a lot of people. Uh, no, I mean, going back to what I said earlier, I will not go and work into a, in a community or a neighborhood unless that core, those core elements already exist. That's how I started this, right? Like it has to be from that community wants it and they have already started the work. So by the time I get there, and again, I have faced room full of, I'm talking like 200 people who are like just waiting for me to slip on the banana. And, you know, they say, well, what are you going to do? And I look out at the room and I say, oh, no, it's what are you going to do? What do you want to do? I'm here to facilitate this. I can help you bring your ideas to a vision and have a little guidance and to tease out your story, your vision, your goals. What are we, what are we going to do, guys? I can give you a framework. Here's, you know, here's what I understand. So I'm there to guide this along and coming as an outsider, which is why I don't live in the community that I'm uh, working on as an outsider, even if it's a neighborhood five blocks away, by the way, because in, you know, in New York, you know, you never leave your neighborhood. So a, a subway train ride two stops is a completely different world. I help them be the most authentic place that it can be but they are creating the story or they are creating the the essence and we and I can help them be authentic I can help them I see I see things that they don't see because they've been living there and walking past it as you know we walk through a, a neighborhood together and I'm saying, oh, look at those fire escapes look at that window look at that storefront whatever it is and you're like Oh, I never noticed that. I walk by here all the time. That's that's right because that's what I do. That's my job, that's my passion. So I can help communities tap into these assets that currently exist, but I'm I never go into a place and plop down anything on them. I I literally help them transform themselves. So let's transition a bit and talk about um what does that kind of work look like? today. I know that you're not exactly, you're not in the same uh, scene as now as you were back then. And before we talk about what you're doing now, I wanted to spend some time getting your ideas on what does 2020 look like for this type of work, given that we have so many restaurants, you know, that are going out of business or are affected by our current economy, right. and just so many other businesses, types of businesses. I was sharing with you before, the last time that we saw each other, walking around the neighborhood and seeing like a, an old laundry business that was going out of business and 
and them me assuming that they are Korean as I saw Korean it was written in Korean and in English saying that after 35 years they're shutting down their business what does revitalization look like now that we have so many of these businesses going out of like going out of business around the city around and for right now we're talking about San Francisco you know what will that be like how do we keep a sense of place and of history and of those people right now in this economy well, it's funny you mentioned this because since we last spoke, I have actually dipped my toe back into the downtown revitalization world because I just can't stay quiet, I guess, <laughs> maybe is the, rea- is the truth. Um, I know I have this ability and I have this talent and I have this experience So I have been talking to some people about working with communities and businesses and neighborhoods again. So that's very exciting. So I I am actually back in the uh, downtown revival. So, you know, I told you we were talking earlier, nature is cyclical and we, and, and here I am, you know, a million years later, back, back in the field. Although it is, um, what you were asking me about, my business that evolved out of this, um, they are interrelated. So let me answer your question first, and then we'll get to the noodling around. In the current situation that we are in, because of both COVID and because of the awareness that has evolved around civic unjust is that a a reasonable way for me to put this um it's actually i'm i'm just not surprised can i can i just say that i am not surprised i'm not a soothsayer and although if i do reach over i can get my crystal ball off my table um i am just not surprised because things do go in cycles This is, I saw the tail end of this in the 70s. And so this is actually very much what happened uh, back in the 70s that we're we're experiencing, you know, 60s and 70s. It's in its own new form, but it's not new. It is timely and I am sad. I'm very sad actually that we have to go through this again and that we didn't learn and grow out of this. But anyway. With because of COVID nineteen and talking using San Francisco as an example, every single business has been affected on some level, but every business has been affected, and we are seeing that play out in neighborhoods in every single neighborhood. There are businesses who have not been able to weather the storm because understand that this is now September that we're talking about, and the shutdown started in March. So that's a long time for businesses to keep their head above water. I've seen uh, the buzzword is I've seen businesses pivot. That's the buzzword. Uh, But some of those have been successful and some of them have not. People were, uh, if you remember, I certainly experienced this here in my neighborhood that as soon as the shutdown was happening, what I saw 
was every corner store. My little market down the street, I'll give them a shout out, the Mayflower Market on Bush Street, fabulous business, uh, family-owned local business. People were lined up out the door to support their local businesses. And not only did I, I don't know why I didn't think to take a photograph of this, but people not only were buying toilet paper, jugs of water, and any package of chicken that they could scoop up, they were also buying flowers. There's a tiny floral store, floral shop around the corner from me that is between here and, and, a, and a supermarket. And people, it's a tiny storefront. And there were people waiting on the sidewalk outside of this florist to buy bouquets of flowers. I, and I mean, I, I really, I was almost in tears of joy because businesses, people wanted to support their local businesses and they did it in any way that they possibly could. And I saw that play out over and over and over again. Now, pandemics as well as shared um, shared massive um, trauma so 9/11 may you know things that affect everyone certainly covid these incidences also have their own cycle they've been documented i did not make this up um, and so that's its own cycle. So the first thing that people do is we, we come together, communities, people come together. Do you remember? I mean, there's the panic, but we all, then people come together. And I saw, when I saw that people went out to, uh, support their neighborhood businesses, that really made me cry with happiness and joy. Not all the businesses survived that, but they did have that experience. Some businesses, for whatever reason and for a wide variety of reasons, did close and they may not come back. And I'm going to say may not come back because I've also seen the next generation revive these businesses. Maybe it skips a generation. My grandfather had to close his, his corner store because, or a restaurant or dry cleaning business because of COVID, but the the grandchild, their grandchildren come back and open those businesses sometimes. I have seen that happen and it's very heartwarming. I'm just keeping the door open on that. So I do think that that's going to happen. Businesses have done the pivot, which is this is before we were able to eat on the sidewalks. You saw restaurants selling wine and alcohol. They were selling wine out of their, their doors. They were selling flour so that people could bake bread ubiquitous sourdough bread. We saw people, I mean, uh, restaurants selling flour, selling rice, selling vegetables. They were selling their inventory to make a couple of bucks to make rent and to figure out what to do next. And then maybe they got a couple of inches, you know, a, a forward on there. Maybe uh, property owners were willing to talk about um, giving a reduction in rent. So people started to come together to help one another in a variety of different and creative ways. I've seen businesses join forces where one business is selling the product of another business maybe two blocks away and vice versa. 
So that is happening, uh, which is very exciting. And I think we're going to see some interesting partnerships again down the road. And the other thing that I'm going to say has been the most obvious is, which is included in somewhat in what I've said already, but is the amount of creativity coming from businesses themselves, creativity and people approaching how they're going to support their local businesses. So a lot of creativity, which goes to show you that it doesn't matter if you're an engineer or an artist, everyone's creative and seeing that that come out. So, you know, it's just been really exciting. I mean, you know, to be honest, there's a, um, not far from here, a dry cleaning slash tailor business, you know, which the tailor, they will do you like the hem of your, your coat or fix your lapel. They, mm-hmm. they're making masks. They've, they've made, they have masks up in the, in the window as well. So people are getting very creative and doing whatever they can do. Yeah. I think we can always depend on folks trying to do their best to figure it out. And what's great to see is people figuring out how are we going to preserve the businesses that have supported us and that are a part of the fabric of our street, of our neighborhood, of our community. Like what you're hearing? Go over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening from and give us five stars. Putting content together is hard work and your quick validation will be a boost to my ego and will bump this podcast up on the charts. Thanks so much. Now let's get back to the show. I'm curious to know if you think that beyond, you know, the everyday person doing what they can to support their local business and business owners coming up with new ways to market themselves or even completely shifting into different types of businesses to keep, keep themselves alive. What does the public investment look like in order to help those business businesses as well? Cause we hear yes. all the time. I mean, we're hearing about it now, these bailouts for giant companies, you know, giant corporations are getting bailouts. We all know about the banks being bailed out in the 2008 crisis, but we don't really hear about small businesses getting that help. And when we do, it's kind of framed as a handout or some type of, you know, help that people are begging for rather than something that would be absolutely intrinsic to keeping our society and economy alive. Wow. Great, great question. Um, There are, yes, (laughs) the short answer is yes. There actually are a number of initiatives that come through public funds, like from your city hall, from a variety of departments within uh, local government. There are definitely those uh, initiatives, I'll just call them, because they have a lot of different uh, profiles. So these initiatives, these economic stimulative initiatives come in various forms And that has to do with what is the mission of that particular agency or division, okay? Now, the reason why you probably don't hear about them is they move at a snail's pace, and therefore, they're not going to hit with a bang, right? So the federal government says, we're going to make the, you know, Congress came together, and we're going to... um, Tomorrow, we're going to have these funds available for X, Y, and Z businesses, right? Local governments can't work at that kind of, I'm not exactly sure why, but they can't work at that kind of speed. What they usually have to do is 
convene the council. The council can't work until they get the neighborhood people. I will say, if you live in a neighborhood and you're not involved in some way in your local politics, like if you're not talking to your supervisor, you can't complain because, you, you know, you've got to make noise. How many people haven't shown up in their city hall meetings? How many people haven't called or emailed their supervisor? How many people let someone else do it for them? You have got to make your voice heard. If you have a business in, if you have any business within a, what I'll call a commercial district, and you're not involved in the local um, business improvement district organization, or you're not involved in the chamber of commerce, or you're not involved in whatever that business, local neighborhood business organization is, you do not get to complain. Because you cannot wait for someone else to fix it. Yeah, I think what we're seeing with COVID, what we're seeing with COVID is that it's triggering people in multiple ways, right? It's it's triggering us to question our economic systems. It's triggering people to question our racial systems and tensions around race in the United States. And it's getting people to think about like, how did this happen? Why did this happen? Why are things like this? And what can I do about it? And at least for me in Oakland, when I have attended these these city council meetings, there are far more people who are coming to them than before. Like in June, throughout the budget cycle, there would be three, four, 500 people on the Zoom city council call. And that never happened before. So um, I think that that definitely we're seeing a shift. We're, sh- yeah. we're seeing a shift there. And now let me defend myself. <laughs> it's not because people are bad or stupid. It's because we get caught up in our lives and we get caught up in, it's like having blind, you know, blinders on. We get caught up in our own little world and that takes up a lot of time, right? You know, you're trying to just do your mm-hmm. books. You're just trying to, to keep it going. but at the same time, if you don't take that extra hour, if you're not willing to delay your dinner or eat off of your lap while you watch a council meeting, um, you just have to have to be involved. And, and I know that sounds boring. And that sounds really like people don't want to do that. But I, I, I can't, I cannot emphasize that enough. And if you want to know how let's talk about race. If you want to know about race and how that's affected is it is this endless loop of people not getting involved because they don't feel welcome. And if they don't feel welcome, they don't feel that their voice is heard. And if they don't feel that their voice is heard, they don't show up. And if they don't show up, then, mm-hmm. you know, people on the dais, meaning people who are the council people or commissioners or whatever, they literally count the people in the room. And if they don't have standing room and people in the hallway, obviously pre-COVID, or on the Zoom, you know, you can see how many attendees you have on your 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 Zoom screen, they are disinterested. So it's this, you know, that's that's a big problem. So people who are of the minority 
course, that is shifting. But let's just, you know, people who are been marginalized, people who are of the minority have a less likelihood to attend, to call their representative, whoever that may be. They are less likely to show up in these meetings because they don't feel that they are welcome. And that, when people say they don't understand the Black Lives Movement, that's the problem. The core of the problem is people don't feel heard. They don't feel welcome to the conversation. And they don't, people don't, you know, that's not feeling welcome to the conversation is probably, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm just, I'm just a middle-aged lady who does, who does things around neighborhoods, but I'm telling you, I have seen that over and over and over again. If you don't feel welcome and what can we do? And now I, I, when I was, I went, I've gone to more than one Black Lives Matter, um, uh, I don't even like to call them protests, but people are showing up in the Civic Center. And I've shown up in the Civic Center on a couple of occasions to show my support, but also to listen and to show respect. I don't know what it's like to be Black. I don't know what it's like to be, um, to have to explain any of these issues to my kid or whatever, you know, my, my family, but I keep that conversation going. I've had more than one, I've had probably thousands of conversations about this with my daughter when she was growing up. Um, She was intentionally raised and went to school that there was, um, or schools that had um, representation and that she was, you know, we when she went to college, she actually was asked to speak about growing up in a diverse neighborhood. She was like, she called me, she said, I don't understand. Why am I speaking? Why am I being asked to speak about growing in a, in a a racially diverse school? And I said, because they, the people you're speaking to didn't have this exposure. You have to feel that the space is for you. Yes. So you asked me a while ago, did I just go and stand in the doorway of these people's businesses and ask them and, or, and rather tell them what to do? No. But what I did do was stand in every single doorway at least once a week, if not on a daily basis, and say, let's take a walk. Let's have a conversation. In the communities that I worked in, even if I was uh, consulting to them and I wasn't there full time, I sat in their businesses and listened to them and watched them. I helped them wrap sandwiches. I was in the back room, you know, on, you know, dealing with like the behind the scenes thing, whatever that looked like. Every single business, I watched them and talked to them and listened to them and took walks with them. Every single one which is why this doesn't happen overnight. So, you know, we can't talk about this for the next six hours, but let me tell you that I believe in walking with your business owners and the business owners have to walk. They can't just stand in their own business. They have to look, I call it the left, right. They have to left, right, and forward. If you own a business, you have to stand in your door. You have to look to your left and you have to look to your right and ask yourself, what are they doing? And then you have to go across the street, look at your storefront and ask what you are doing. That sounds really simple, but if you do that and you, you know, 
And I don't mean just cleaning it up, but I mean talking to neighbors have the business neighbors have to talk to one another. But um, I just believe right. in, in, you know, if you go and buy a cup of coffee, you go and bring your dry cleaning in, you go and and pick up your takeout food and you don't ask the person behind the counter, how are you doing? How are you faring? Shame on you. Shame on you. Doesn't work. Doesn't work. It's about not just being a good business for the community, but being a good neighbor within the community. And that's yes. a little different. Absolutely. Um, I want to, I want to shift gears a bit yep. and talk about um, noodling around. Yes. Uh, what is noodling around and why did you want to create it? So noodling around, which first of all, the term comes from the jazz expression to improvise, to play around, to not know exactly where you're going with this. That's where noodling around comes from. And I've had enough musicians in my life to, to have picked up the phrase, and I always thought it was how the way, the way how I go from point A to point B. I don't know how to get, walk in a straight line. So noodling around is about, on the surface, it's about neighborhood exploration. So we could say that's like taking a walking tour, or we can say that's just taking a stroll through a neighborhood, okay, depending on how you want to look at it. For me, noodling around is about slowing down and unplugging. Well, I mean, I very much call it unplug, step out, recharge. So for noodling around, you unplug, you take the earbuds out of your phone. You may even just put your phone on vibrate. You get out of your routine. And that may mean if you're walking from here to the grocery store, you turn left instead of turning right, or you walk one block out of your direction or out of your route to just have another experience. Now, mind that I said walking, not driving. Walking will connect you. It will connect you to both the built environment around you and the social environment around you, the cultural environment around you your neighborhood or the neighborhood that you're, you're visiting and exploring. So that's what noodling around is. Noodling around is for the constantly curious. Noodling around is for those who want to get out of their tiny little world that they have self-constructed and are latched to. You can do it in tiny steps. You can do it in big steps. It's not about speed. It's not about counting your steps because you're in an exercise program. All of those things are great. If you go noodling around three times a week, your health will improve in a variety of, reasons, variety of ways. That's a nice aspect to this. Noodling around is about discovering where you are at that moment. It's about walking down the street and listening for or listening to the music that's floating out of the upper floor apartment building. 
or being aware of and seeing the light that's falling on the building across the street. It's about learning to tune up and into the world and community around you. And that includes the people who live there, work there, shop there. It's everything involved with community. It's overhearing what the two people in front of you are saying. It's the hello that you give and receive to the person who's putting their umbrellas out on the sidewalk when it starts to rain or putting up an awning or recently building outdoor cafe areas, outdoor eating areas. You say hello, you say thank you, you say good luck, and I bet you'll get it back. And now in a short diversion to run your errands or to go to work or whatever whatever it is, you have increased your connection to your community. That is so important right now. And this time lends itself to that probably more so than any time before because we're stuck at home. And at least for me in my neighborhood, I am way more in tune with my neighbors than I've ever been before. Um, of like knowing everybody's name of people being interested in who we are. And, you know, a lot of, at the start of quarantine, it was a lot of gardening and being outside and, um, getting to know people that way. And people like dropping off fruit from their garden or dropping off succulents that we could plant easily to try to help, you know, help us as we're trying to build, um, our landscape garden. And that feels different than before. Um, but I think what I like about noodling around, which is, I know you you do not like the term, uh, thinking of it as like a tourism, de- you know, business. It is not a tourism business. It's about connecting people to places. It's about being aware of your surroundings and really kind of grounding yourself and what you're going to explore that day. What what I have enjoyed about it when I've done it with you and even on my own is walking taking time to think and reflecting on the buildings that I'm seeing and the history that I either learned through you learned somewhere else or don't know yet. And I'm curious about. Yes. Why, why was that important for you? Cause you've done that work right in a different sense and are kind of coming back to that now, but why was it important for you to create this type of business? That's not about selling something to people in a tourism way but is about kind of connecting closer to their heart. I I saw both in myself and the people around me, my neighbors, I saw people rushing. I saw people on the sidewalk rushing to get to the next place with their face in the phone, their earbuds in, and when I saw statistics that over 45%, so almost 50% of people polled in America feel disconnected and isolated. They feel, they identify themselves as being feeling isolated and disconnected, and they don't know why. And yet when they walk out on the street, they are 
they are following the map on their phone or they're sending texts and they're listening, you know, they're doing their phone calls, their Zoom calls, whatever, electronically and disconnected from those around them. No wonder people are are feeling isolated and disconnected. And I knew from my experience that by taking a few minutes to walk an extra block and taking those earbuds out, I have a very good friend of mine who we talk almost every day, and she prides herself from having of taking all her phone calls and even her text messages and all that while walking because she likes to walk. She gets good exercise. She feels good, but she's got, she's plugged in the entire time. And I asked her if she just took her earbuds out and put her phone away for the last two blocks that she walks. She would just do that and let me know how she feels. And she told me that she had never realized that there were birds in the street trees. Like in the middle of San Francisco, she didn't realize that there were birds here. I I was wow. stunned. And this is a person who like loves to walk. It's, but she didn't realize that there were birds so in the trees. It's so crazy how we are just so, we're so like in our own worlds that we have no idea. <laughs> Yeah. What's going on? I can identify with that. I'm yeah. always listening to something. Yeah. And, and again, it's not like you're bad. It's just what we've gotten used to. But the because of technology, and I love technology. We're using it right now and certainly use it a lot during, um, you know, being sheltered in place. But we have to know when to unplug from technology or to use it in a, in a wiser, smarter way. We can use technology to help us connect to our neighbors and to help us support businesses. We can use technology to, so I'm not anti-technology, but what the intention of noodling around, to get back to your question, the intention of noodling around was to create an opportunity to spark people's interest, to spark their curiosity and to help them reconnect to not only their community, but to themselves. So I see noodling around as this intersection of architectural history, this intersection of place and our self-expression, our own authenticity, that if we do if we explore ourselves while we are exploring neighborhoods, we will, first of all, we will do wonderful things for our brain. The synapses in our brain are going to be doing joyous things, okay? We will have more physical energy. We will have more mental energy. We will feel more alive. And isn't that something that we we can all use more of to feel connected and to feel that extra little like, so you mentioned earlier that you go walking around, you go noodling around and maybe you see something that you don't know what it is, or you don't know anything about it, but somehow you're curious about why, why are those bricks spotted that way? That's like such a weird thing. Like, what is that? Well, you're going to go and, you know, you're going to do a search on 
that neighborhood. You're going to go search on your, maybe you'll put that address in and you'll get some, and you're like, oh my goodness. That's because that building was built by this man who, um, you know, grew up in this town and that's how they made bricks in this town, right? Like there's any number of ways to, to, to look at that, but you'll have learned something and then you, who knows what research rabbit hole that'll take you down, right? Um, but there's all kinds of ways to like, I started doing Qigong a couple of months ago because I saw people doing it in the park and I started researching, what is it that they are doing? What is that? And then, you know, now I do Qigong. So, um, there are a number of different ways they can, that you can go with this, but noodling around while you will pick up some amazing history in San Francisco, let's say that one would learn from doing a tour, a guided walking tour, you will learn those pieces of information that they're fascinating. But it's connecting yourself to that story. That's what noodling around is about. Where are you in this story? Right? Where are you? Yeah. In yeah. in this place. And and what do you how do you how do you feel about that? How are you connected to it? What does that, you know, say for you? What does that spark inside of you? So that's really what, and sometimes I say, well, it's a meditation off the mat. That noodling around takes you out. It gives you an impetus, right? You're, I'm going to, let's go out and look for the, or let's go out and just come back and see what you find, you know, and we'll talk about it. But that experience that I know you and I have had and I've made you walk by yourself and not with someone else, allowed you to kind of, you kind of let your imagination go. You kind of started letting your mind like, oh, I'm walking here and I don't know what Sheila's really wanting for me to look around. Oh, look at that. Look at that little kitty. Oh, look at that garden. Oh, wow. There's a garden behind there. Wow. Look between those buildings. And you're like, wow, you know, this is, I really like seeing this. And then I know that it touched something inside of you that may have, maybe you identified a longing feeling, maybe you identified a happy feeling, whatever that is, you got in touch with some feeling inside of you or feelings in a short 15 minute walk. Right? Yeah, I think it's, it's one of those, it's one of those experiences that stays with me and that I like to do, uh, well, when the air quality is better, we've had three days of good air. And we'll see how it goes. But um, that I like to do uh, pretty often now because it allows me to just click out. Like there's just so much news. I can't, I can't deal with it. I read the paper all the time. I'm reading books about all different subjects that I enjoy. And some of them are heavy. Some of them are lighter. But the news itself is just so overwhelming right now that like, it's too much to constantly be on my phone. I feel like my eyeballs are going to fall out, honestly. Um, I feel like, yeah, I just, I just feel completely overwhelmed. And I think having a chance to just walk without anything, like I like to listen to um, movie scores sometimes as my walking, as my walking accompaniment, um, mostly because it's, you know, there's no words and it's just beautiful music. But I also now have a better appreciation for just walking without anything, just the air, just listening to what's going on around me. And I, I really did not do that. Even though I am a walker, I love walking cities. I don't unfortunately live in 
much of one because I, I live in Oakland um, and I don't live uh, super close to public transportation. But um, I lived in Chicago for almost 10 years. Um, and that's much more of a walking city than here and a better connected city. And I never really did that until I started doing noodling around with you, where I really thought of like not having anything in my ears, not trying to do it, not trying to multitask in any way, just right. trying to walk and observe. And that's really, that's really, really different. Well, I think that's... It's different than a tour. It's different it's than a different tour. It's different than a tour because again... People ask me all the time, please take me out noodling. Please take me out noodling. And I do. And I, I, and you and I have done this. But at some point, I kind of push you off to do, you know, to circle around a block or to have experience to just do it on your own. And the, the premise of noodling around, if I... It really is to help people learn to be in the moment as you are experiencing the moment. And whatever comes up for you, whether it is the light on the wall, feeling that little bit of marine breeze off of the bay, of hearing the street birds, right? of here overhearing the conversation of the couple walking ahead of you whatever it is it doesn't matter it's that you are experiencing in the moment that you are are have that you are experiencing so that's why i call it meditation off the map because it is and these may be snippets it's not like you may have like a, a brief second where you have that realization where you have that experience but you have done more for yourself in that split second or in those few minutes. Now, I, I go for walks easily for an hour or two at a time, easily. That doesn't mean the entire time I'm not, that I'm present. Trust me. I'm like, what am I going to make for dinner? Do I have to stop at Trader Joe's on the way back? Did I remember to send out that scope of work? Whatever it is. Of course I do that. And we all do that. But then... I can say, okay, okay, and I let it go, and I will walk for another, for a block or two, and I'm just like, okay, wow, and I'm just very present. So that's why it's like, it's just like meditation. So I want to uh, wind down a bit and uh, wrap us up. I, one of the things that I always come back to is trying to change a career or shift it in a different way gets harder and harder, it feels, the older that I get um, and that we get. And I think we're kind of fed this idea that, you know, it can only happen a specific time in your life. You got to pick your career when you're 22. If you didn't pick it then, it's not happening. And obviously you've had, you've had changes. I want you to talk a bit about what does it mean to do this at this stage in your life and as you're coming back, as you're kind of doing a mix right now of noodling around and um, revitalization projects, what does it mean to be making those changes later in life? How did that affect you? Um, and what would you share for someone who would want to do that as well? That like sure. not when they're 22, maybe not when they're even 30, but later. Um, well, I've actually, even though I've been in this 
overarching umbrella field of what I'll call historic preservation slash downtown revitalization, my career and my job has changed multiple times, multiple times. When I was doing Main Street, that I could have stayed in that field, that specific field doing that until now. I could have done it for the next 30 years. But I left when I felt it was time and I started a consulting business called Circa Historic Property Development, where I focused specifically on helping people rehabilitate and develop their historic properties so that they were economically healthy and that they were contributed to the community. So I really focused in on the buildings. That's a whole other conversation, but it was really fascinating and really interesting and and kind of a, a very niche market for revitalization. And then that evolved because of the change in the market and the change in the economy. Hello, 2008. Um, That changed again. That really kind of focused in on environmental impacts, environmental being um, in California, we have something called the Environmental Quality, California Environmental Quality Act or CEQA. And so it had to do with the impacts of projects on cultural resources. And I did that for a number of years, which was very intellectually stimulating and challenging, but it also was heartbreaking in many, in many ways. Um, I got to a threshold where I could no longer do that work because I felt that my work was being compromised. And I made a huge decision to leave. That was a very very successful business with more work than I could keep up with. But I chose to leave that business at the age of, hold your hats, of 56. So I left my, I left almost 20 years of work uh, of that business. I left all my clients behind. I basically closed the door, let my contracts sunset, and I walked out because I could no longer do that work. I felt that my, um, I guess you could say, I felt like my my ethics were compromised to a point that I couldn't support anymore. I couldn't be involved in these projects anymore. And I took some time. I was in a spot to be able to take some time to think about what mattered to me. And to do that, I did leave San Francisco because I needed to go to a place I could afford to do that. So I went to a little seaside town in Rhode Island. Um, And I was able to live very economically and think about what is it I wanted to do. I call that, it it was a sabbatical, but I call it the great exfoliation because I needed to exfoliate some of the toxic relationships that I had during that time. Um, uh, Personal relationships, business relationships, and a relationship with myself. I had gone into an area, a direction that I wasn't happy with myself anymore with that. So I made the decision at 56 to what is it that I want to do? And I took some time with that. I was doing a lot of writing um, uh, for small, tiny publications and online publications and just being. And then that brought me to, I said, what do I love to do? Well, I like to noodle around the place. I love my neighborhoods. I love to do that. And noodling around evolved from that uh, with a very 
pointed mission to stay true to myself. And I knew if I was yearning, I was disconnected. I was overly plugged in. I was disconnected from my community. I had gotten too far away from the things that mattered. So I took my process, the things that walking is the salve to my soul, looking around at beautiful things, connecting to neighborhoods and my environment works for me. And I started to be able to connect the dots between having that experience, that physical experience of walking and being in neighborhoods and how that was helping me heal and how that was helping me stay connected to myself and finding my, doing my own inner exploration, if you will, how those were very much aligned. That's how Noodling Around evolved. And I wanted to take that to out to others. And I used my experience working with educational, um, like educational companies, uh, doing coordination work, working with small groups, uh, small groups of people, developing content for neighborhood exploration of coming together as a group, going out as individuals and reconnoitering as a group to discuss what we've seen as something that I really, I really enjoyed. So I took that out there and that's what noodling around is as well as to, you know, obviously I'm on Instagram. So I try to, you know, spread the love on Instagram and, and, and with individuals and very organically because of COVID that brought me back to um, endeavors to help others with neighborhood revitalization. So that's how all of this has coalesced. None of, I, I don't believe in living my life in cubby holes. I never have. I've crossed, I've regularly kind of crossed those borders all the time. So as a woman and as a woman who is, I'm now in my 60s, I'm 62. As a woman who has been pushed to the background and marginalized and treated as invisible, nothing makes you feel so invisible as walking to a store and they can't even look up. You know, that it is like, like literally when you hit your middle, when you hit your middle age, it is, you are not even defined. I actually had a headhunter say to me, he was a friend of a friend and he was telling me this. Um, he said, please, I'm saying this to you with all due respect. The last person anyone will hire is a middle-aged woman. And I almost fell off my seat and I was pissed. And that, of course, you know me well enough to know that like lit a fire. Um, and I should send him an email one of these days to say, oh, by the way. Um, so I just believe that in any, every aspect of our life, every phase of our life, it is not going to be, I am not the woman I was at 21. I am not the woman I was at 27. I am not the woman I was at 34. I am not the woman I was at 54 and certainly not the woman I was at 53 or 52. I embrace the age, the phase that I am in. I don't think about my age. 
I always have to stop and like, how old am I? I don't think about my age. I think about my phase. And I am now in a phase of life where I am, I have really, really cultivated my curiosity. I have nothing to lose. I cannot wait for the what's happening in the next 30 years of my life. I have so much on my plan. I believe in being excited. I believe in being expectant. Not to have expectations on people, but to be expectant. Like that Christmas morning feeling of like you're excited because you can't wait to open the present. That that life, that that feeling, that's the feeling I want every single day. And when I go noodling around, when I am working in revitalization and talking to, about the possibilities, I don't limit that to my paying work. I want to bring possibilities to everything that I do. I am not afraid to ask myself, well, why can't I do this? And Jess, you know me. I often say, well, what else can I do here? What can we do with this? All right. What are we going to do now? And an off-use phrase of mine is, well, I'll figure it out, which is not I'm going to find all the answers. It's, it means I'm going to throw myself out there and see what comes back. Thanks for joining me for my conversation with Sheila. You can follow Sheila at at noodlingaround underscore SF on Instagram. It's a great follow that highlights all the beautiful San Francisco architecture you could want. You can also support her work by purchasing her Noodling Around postcards at noodlingaroundpostcards.com. And look out for her socially distanced Noodling Around meetups if you're in the Bay Area, where you can explore and learn more about different San Francisco neighborhoods and their histories. Leap Year is a production of Leap Year Podcast, LLC. Editing by Jess Cajo and the incredible Lacase Cousineau. Music by Jess Cajo and the uber-talented Matt Boyer. Created, hosted, and produced by me, Jess Cajo. You can follow our team on Instagram and Twitter at at Jess Cajo, at Lacase Cousineau, and at MMM Boyer. All social handles are in the show notes. Finally, thank you to my family and friends who supported me in this endeavor. And thank you for listening. I'll see you next week.